0: tonight, chapter 12, the gospel of Luke and chapter 12. Tonight we're going to begin reading at uh, verse 13 of this chapter, the gospel of Luke chapter 12 and verse 13, and we will uh, read it down uh, to verse 31, the gospel of Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man who made me a judge or a divider over you. And he said unto them, Take heed, and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. He said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Which of you, with taking thought, can add to a stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not not ye that which ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. Our text this evening brings before our attention a man who had it all. A farmer who evidently enjoyed a bumper harvest who took advantage of his apparent good fortune and decided that it was time for him to retire, to enjoy the good life, to take his ease, to eat and enjoy good food, to drink and to be merry, to enjoy the company of family and of friends. And so for him it was a case of no more early evenings and no more dark late evenings on the farm, but uh, rather he was going to enjoy a. Lot Long and happy retirement—that was his intent. But the Lord Jesus warns us here that one should take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesseth. My friends, this advice that the Lord Jesus gave here is absolutely countercultural. It goes against the very grain of everything that. Our society and society in general has taught down through the years. The world teaches the more you have, the happier you will be. The bigger your bank account, the more secure you're going to be. The more you have, the more you have to enjoy. But Jesus said, not necessarily so. Life abundant does not rest in material things. It doesn't rest in possessions and stocks and shares and bonds, not in healthy bank balances or full-order books, not in fast cars and foreign holidays, not in fine clothes and sumptuous fare, not in fine homes with quality furniture, but in having a right relationship with God and with man. That's where happiness really lies. Now, it would do us well, and we will, of course, but it will do us well to take a look at this parable tonight and try to grasp the importance of what Jesus was saying. But I want to think first of all about the, uh, the context. You know we read in verse 1 that Jesus was teaching a great number of people. It says in the meantime when there were gathered together an innumerable multiple of people insomuch that they trod upon one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, it's interesting what it says there. It gives you an idea of the kinds of numbers that came out to hear Jesus preach. That people were standing on one another. I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd like that, but it can be quite intimidating to be in such a large crowd of people where people are standing on top of one another. Of course, we've seen some horrific uh, instances of crowds crushing uh, one another in, in recent times. Um, I remember in our honeymoon, we went to Edinburgh. Uh, for our honeymoon, and we were there over Hogmanay, and we thought we'd go down, uh, I think it's Princess Street, is it, in Edinburgh? And uh, we went down Princess Street in, at Hogman a and at Hogmanay, and my goodness, I've never been in a tighter crowd in my entire life. And what happened was that uh, Hazel got crushed, and I got crushed in the crowd, and quite literally, our feet lifted off the pavement. And the crowd was going one way with me, and another way with Hazel. And it seemed like we were being separated before we'd hardly being joined. Uh, but nevertheless, it was quite alarming to watch my new bride disappearing up Prince's Street in amongst a crowd of uh, of rather exuberant Scotsmen. But nevertheless, that was the that's where the Lord Jesus was at. He, he has this massive crowd of people, and they're standing on top of each other, and they're trying to get over the heads of one another to see him and to hear what he has to say, and to so get some glimpse of him and to hear his teaching. Well, what he's teaching here are matters of supreme importance. In verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, he warns the people about hypocrisy. And of course, one of the great complaints about Christianity and about the church today is that it is full of hypocrites. Well, I don't believe that for one moment. Uh, The true church of God is not full of hypocrites. I've been around churches a long time, and I can guarantee you that the vast majority of people who attend churches are not hypocrites in any sense. Uh, But, you know, there are those who want to cast that stone and smear Christ's bride in that way. Uh, And certainly there are some within the churches who would be hypocritical. But, friends, that's true in every field of life doesn't matter where you look. I mean, you don't have to look very far back in history to find a certain health secretary who broke his own rules that he made about wearing masks and not being close to people. You know, hands, face, space. And he broke every one of those, didn't he? And of course, he was charged with Hypocrisy. So there is hypocrisy in political circles. There's hypocrisy in sporting circles. There's hypocrisy in every avenue of life. Hypocrisy is not a problem restricted to the church of God. It's a problem really that is within the heart of all men. And and all of us will have to confess as we look over the course of our lives that there have been times when we have been perhaps a little bit hypocritical. But that's a human problem. Now in contrast to that, The Lord Jesus had not one hypocritical bone in his body. He was absolutely sincere. He was absolutely an open book. He didn't have any skeletons in his closet. He wasn't putting on any kind of pretense. He wasn't preaching one thing and practicing another thing. He was the genuine article in that respect. And so he warns his hearers about this sin and he reminds them to beware of it and to realize that ultimately if you sin in that way, you're only fooling yourself because when it comes to the time of judgment, your true self will be revealed and who you are will be ultimately discovered. Look in verse 2. He says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Now, unfortunately for the health secretary, there was a hidden camera that caught his particular uh, feeling, but uh, there's no hidden camera here because the all-se- all-seeing eye of God sees everywhere all at once, and here is Everything all at once, and knows everything all at once. So that if we are indeed doing one thing on Sunday and another thing the rest of the week, the Lord Jesus knows all about it. Then he goes on to speak about hell, and you know there is a hell. There is a place of eternal torment for all who are lost in the Bible is very explicit about this. The Lord Jesus taught on this subject numerous times. And, uh, you know, if God is going to judge the world someday, as we believe he is, those who are found outside of his grace, outside of his favor will be lost and lost for all eternity and cast into the lake of fire. Now there are people who say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that a a God of love would uh, conduct himself that way, that he would do that to people. Listen, we ought to believe what God says about himself. And not develop a God of our own creation and imagination. We have to accept what the Bible says about God. And here is the God and the Lord Jesus himself, who is the revelation and manifestation of God, who is the incarnation of God. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has never lied, will never lie, and cannot lie. And he tells these people that they need to beware of hell. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can." do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So he's saying to us, you know, don't be worried about physical death physical death's not your big fear physical death is not the thing that ought to occupy your mind and concern you eternal death is the thing you want to be worried about he says you want to be concerned that if after your life has been taken you find yourself outside of grace you find yourself still in your sin you find yourself not right before God and as a consequence you are cast into hell those are the words of the Lord Jesus now if there was no fear in hell If there was no hell, well, why would he use the word fear? Finally, he speaks to them about the unpardonable sin. Now, I would say, given that he's just spoken to them about the reality of divine judgment and about the reality of hell, which is a fearful thing to countenance, you would think that they would prick up their ears when he tells them there is a particular sin that is unpardonable, a sin that cannot be forgiven in this life and will not be forgiven in the life to come. He speaks to them then of the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Now let me put to bed any notion that a Christian can commit this sin today. That's an impossible thing for a Bible-believing Christian uh, to do. It's beyond us. You would have to have seen the Lord Jesus in operation to, to commit this sin. You would have to see him perform miracles and then credit his miracles with the work of the devil. And that was the unpardonable sin. You cannot do that today. In fact, no one can do that today. But it was possible in Jesus' lifetime because obviously it pertained to his ministry and to his coming. Now, these are heavy and weighty subjects. Hypocrisy, hell, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost. But in the midst of this great heaving throng of people who are being exposed to these teachings, there stands a man who has not heard a single word of what has been said. You see, here's a man who is preoccupied. His mind is on other things. He's taken up in his thought life with matters that are not eternal but are temporal, with matters that really don't matter in terms of the future, He's completely consumed with all that's going on in his life. And you say, well, what is it that consumed him? What is the thing that is clouding this man's mind? You know, why is it that he cannot concentrate on anything else? What was the one thing that was set before his thinking as he heard Jesus preach that day? Well, in one word, here's what his mind was on. His mind was on money. He was thinking about money. Notice his concern in verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, that is the Lord Jesus said unto this man, Man who made me a judge or a divider over you. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now, notice that 13th verse. He says, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. This man was consumed by personal greed. You see, he was in a dispute with his brother, his own kith and kin, his own blood and flesh, over the matter of an inheritance. Now, uh, we read accounts of inheritance battles going through the courts, all the time, don't we? Uh, Recently I read of a court case where there were two stepsisters, there are two stepsisters actually, who have gone to court and they're squabbling uh, over the uh, 300,000 pound inheritance that is due them uh, following their parents' death. Now their parents died on the same day. They died of hypothermia But because they are stepsisters and not blood-born sisters, the father was the father of one and the mother was the mother of the other. So they have gone to court and they've asked the court to decide of their parents which one died first. So that the other one can gain the inheritance, all of the inheritance, and cut out the other stepsister. And, you know, it's a rather unseemly affair, isn't it? You know, it's it's rather pitiful. You'd think that they'd each be happy at this point in their lives to say, well, there's £150,000 for you and there's £150,000 for me. Let's take it away and, and be happy with our lot. But no, they want it all. They're not happy with their lot. One or other of them wants to have it all. And it's so unseemly. And yet those kinds of things go on on a much lesser scale, perhaps, Day in and day out, all around our country. You see, greed and covetousness is a part of us all, isn't it? When, you were, when we were children, if you had siblings, when it came to dinner time, and the mother put out uh, some apple pie or, or your favorite meal, what did you do? You glanced across the table to see how your brothers or sisters were faring in this fine meal and you did a little calculation in your head even before you learned trigonometry and you realized that you could calculate uh, mathematically how these things were divided up, uh, you, made a, you made a judgment with your eye and then you would say, Mom, he's got more pie than me. And you would squabble over who had the biggest piece, who had the most ice cream, who had the most peas. <laughs> That's covetousness in the human heart. And, and you know, we, we get into adulthood and, and what? We find people fighting and squabbling over dead men's possessions. It's the same thing. Now, in Bible times, as you've heard me tell you before, the practice was such that where there were two brothers and the father died, well, the elder brother, he got, according to Jewish law, uh, and indeed, in, according to the customs and culture of the time, he got a double inheritance. In other words, he got twice as much as his Brother, so if there was a ninety thousand pound inheritance, the elder brother got sixty thousand and the younger brother got thirty thousand of those pounds. So so the younger man here would have had thirty three per cent of his father's inheritance awarded to him. And yet he's not happy with that. He wants a further seventeen per cent. He wants this thing to be split fifty fifty. He wants the Lord Jesus to overrule in this particular custom and to make a judgment concerning his his lot with this with this legacy and to say that his father's Uh, estate should be split evenly between the two brothers and that he ought to receive more than what was granted to him. But the Lord Jesus didn't come to earth in order to get caught up in legal battles. He didn't come to earth so that he could play the role of a solicitor and uh, try to work his way through uh, these uh, matters of uh, of personal will. And so he says to the man who made me a judge or a divider over you, he says this is not where I came. I came into the world to save sinners. I didn't come into the world uh, to play this part of a judge and to make this kind of decision this is not my purpose Uh, and so it was evident immediately that he saw through this man's question and he realized that actually this was a greedy protestation on the part of the man and that this greed was eating his soul here is a man who is eaten up with greed consumed with avarice who is preoccupied with selfish and covetous thoughts you know he would have sat very well in today's gimme 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 culture wouldn't he he was what we now know and speak of as a materialist he felt that he, if he could just have that little bit more just 17 percent more well life would seem better It would be more fair in his mind. He would be a happier person as he saw it. You know, some of us may have bought into that philosophy. Some of us may have that idea. But listen, it's a castle in the sand. The idea that if I can amass wealth, if I can be much richer, I'll be much happier uh, 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 proportionately. Well, look, that idea can be washed away in one moment by a freak economic wave. You just need a big downturn in the economy, and you're back to square one. That's why Jesus said, "Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses." Now notice his caution then in verses 16 through 21. And he speak a parable unto them, saying, "The grind of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully." So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So to illustrate his point, the Lord Jesus brings up this parable. He constructs this story, the story of a rich man. Jesus often spoke about rich men, which when you think about that, that's kind of unusual because relatively speaking, there are few really rich people in the world. You know, there are people, there's always somebody who's better off than yourself, isn't there? You can always meet somebody who has more money than you have, but that doesn't necessarily make them rich. And so there are really very few fabulously rich people in the world. And I was trying to think uh, this week about who I knew that, was, uh, that I would consider rich. And I think I can only think of two people. I mean, I, I, I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people by acquaintance. And I can think of only two that I would consider as perhaps rich by definition. And so the Lord Jesus speaks about rich people. Why is that if there are so few that are actually rich? Because the reality is that whilst most of us are not rich, most people desire to be rich. Isn't that true? We desire to be rich. That's why the the national lottery has been such a you know, rip-roaring success since it was launched all those years ago, because every week, despite the fact that millions of people lose millions of pounds every week, and they go back and they spend more millions of pounds, because their big hope is that at some point they are going to receive the millions of pounds that other people are losing. That's why the bookmaker that's why the bookmaker always lives in a, in a nice home, in a nice area, and enjoys nice holidays. I uh, watch those who line up in his shop to put bets on horses, or greyhounds, or football teams, or the weather, or whatever else, else that is they're betting on. You know, they have relatively little in comparison. That's why we love big money quiz shows, don't we? You know, the, uh, the million pound drop, this kind of thing. We, we love these moments where people are put under pressure uh, with the objective that they can win a lot of money if they can just uh, maintain and manage the stress and do the task that is asked of them or answer the question that has been put uh, to them. You see, the average man thinks that wealth and riches and financial security is the key to happiness. But in this one gospel alone, just in the gospel of Luke, we have numerous warnings from the Lord Jesus concerning those who would be rich. In Luke chapter 6, for example, and verse 24, he says, But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. What does that mean? He warns those who are rich and those who vie to be rich in this world's goods, that when you are rich, he says, well, that's everything you've got coming to you. You know, there are people who are poor in this life, who know and love the Lord Jesus, who have yet to experience the riches of glory. But for a lost man, no matter how much riches he has, Jesus said, well, that's your lot. That's your little heaven here on earth. And that's as far as you go. In chapter 16 we read of a rich man and Lazarus, the poor beggar that lay at his gate, whom he passed by each day as he entered in and out of his palatial home, who of course dies in a sin and is sent into hell where he appeals on behalf of his family. In chapter 18, he tells us how it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And in chapter 19, we read of that little man, Zacchaeus, that wealthy tax collector whose proof of salvation was that he returned the money that he had amassed by corrupt means to its rightful owners. And in chapter 21, he compares those who are giving in the treasury the widow and her poor mate uh, with our two mates with those uh, who are much wealthier and they're giving by comparison. And the long and short of these stories and incidents is this that being rich in this world's goods is not necessarily the same as being rich toward God. Now in this parable we read of a man who is described as a certain rich man that's what the bible says of him if it says he was rich then i guess he was certainly rich by definition and uh, yet when you get to the end of this story he's not called a rich man he's called a fool by the conclusion now why is this man a fool because he had worked hard to acquire much And yet with all, he never understood the real value of life. He never understood the real value of his soul. He never took into account the thought of eternity. He just lived for this life and you know we we admire his work ethic you know that he's done so well in many respects and yet his work ethic was designed to appease his own home comforts his own flesh his own material desires so that he gets to the end of his life and he has this bumper at the end of his working life he has this bumper uh, harvest he thinks to himself i don't even have i don't even have uh, warehouses big enough I don't have storage big enough I, I don't have barns big enough to put all this food into and so he says I know what I'll do instead of saying to himself well maybe I should give some of it away you know maybe I should sell it a bit cheaper maybe I should help the poor no 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 that's not on his mind he says what I'm going to do here is I'm going to build a bigger barn and I'm going to store all of this stuff up then I'm going to retire and I'm going to say to my soul soul take your ease. Eat and drink and be merry. He says, I'm going to join the Nazareth Golf Club and uh, I'm going to get out there with the the high society and I'm going to enjoy myself every little bit. You see, if you and I had driven past this man's home in first century Israel, you would have said, now there is a man who has it all. You would have looked at that great rolling lawn, the beautiful home sitting on the hill, you know, this this great pad, and you would have envied it and perhaps said, you know, what must it be like to live in a house like that, to live in a place like this, to live in this locality amongst all of these equally wealthy uh, farmers in this community? You know, that was the thing, and yet when you actually look at what the Lord Jesus says of him, he says, looking internally at this man's heart, that his whole was, his that his heart had a hole that was that left him as empty as a pauper's larder he really had nothing now what mattered most to this man well the same thing that matters most to most men the same thing that mattered most to the man who asked the original question, who said, "Lord, will you indeed speak to my brother about about this inheritance? Have it develop equally?" You know, here was, uh, he was only concerned with his own particular selfish needs, and this uh, this. Uh, man in this parable, this fictional character is equally concerned with his own personal needs, his own personal desires. Notice in verse 17 he is laying up treasures for himself and how often in this passage he refers to himself. Notice it says he thought within himself saying what shall I do because I have no room? Where to bestow my fruits? And he said this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, bestow them upon him, Upon himself. And I will say to my soul, So thou hast much goods laid up for many years, take thine eat, drink, and be merry. You see, it's all about him. It's all about him. He was preoccupied with wealth and riches and comforts, concentrating only on the material things, only upon his own ease only upon his own luxury, without one thought of tomorrow, without one moment's consideration that this might be his last day on earth. No thought of God, no thought of heaven, no thought of hell, no thought of eternity, no thought of judgment, no thought of preparing his soul. What a fool he was. No wonder God, looking down from heaven, says of this man, Thou... Fool! what an idiot you are what a buffoon what a complete and utter twit that you are concerned with building bigger and better and have no thought about eternity no thought for your soul he was like the man who prayed now I lay me down to sleep I pray my modern art to keep I pray my stocks are on the rise and my analyst is wise, that all the wine I sip is white and that my hot tub's watertight. The record ball won't get too rough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my mobile mobile phone still works, that my career won't lose its perks, my microwave won't radiate, my house won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and that my money market grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my merc they will not take. You know, there's a lot of folks who pray that little prayer in one form or another. That was the kind of thing that was on this man's mind. So the Lord Jesus said, Thou fool! this night shall thy soul be required of thee, and then who shall those things be which thou hast Provided, and you see the obvious uh, relation uh, to the question that was first put to him. Here comes this man saying, "Lord, divide, uh, speak to my brother, he divide these this, these goods to me. I get half of the inheritance, that I get half of my father's legacy." And the Lord Jesus says, "In effect, what's it matter if you get half of the legacy if you haven't prepared for eternity?" He says, "You're an idiot." He didn't. He didn't call him an idiot. But by implication, that's what he was suggesting. You're a fool. Because all you're concerned about is money. Well, I'm talking to you about matters eternal. I wonder, dear friend, have you made preparation for eternity? Have you made preparation for eternity? If you should die today, where would you spend eternity? You say, well, I I don't think I'm going to die today. How do you know that? You don't know what today holds. We could be planning your funeral by this time tomorrow. You don't know. You say, well, I'm in the peak of health. It makes no difference. You could be knocked down on the road. You could trip and fall and bump your head and be gone. You could feel very well today only to discover that actually your heart is in terrible state, And the whole thing pack in on you in a moment, young or old. You might well say, well, listen, pastor, that's all right for these old people. I'm a young person. I've got years and years and years ahead of me. You realize the first person that ever died in human history was a young man, not an old man. The first grave that was ever filled was filled by a son, not by a father, by Abel. Don't you think for one moment that youth will somehow protect you from death? Young people die all the time. Have you prepared for eternity? Young people, playing with your mobile phones and and think to yourself, well, I've got the latest gadgetry and look what this phone can do. What will it matter what it can do if you die in your sin and go to hell? What then of, of however many megabytes or gigabytes or video bytes or whatever else bytes you want to care? What does it matter if you die in your sin and go to hell? What well, does it matter if you're wearing brand clothing that your friends admire if you die in your sin and go to hell? See what the Lord Jesus is telling us? He's saying you're focused on all the wrong things. Listen, have you prepared for eternity? If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? That's the question that you must answer. Would you you go to heaven to be with the Lord? Or would you lose your soul in eternal hell without the Lord? The story is told of a pastor in America who was invited to dine in the home of a very wealthy Texan after the meal his host led him out to the place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area and so he pointed to the oil wells that were uh, all over the land peppering the whole of the landscape and he boasted 25 years ago I had nothing now as far as the eye can see it's all mine And he looked in the opposite direction and there were sprawling fields of grain waving in the wind. And he said, that's all mine, pastor. Then turned to the east toward huge herds of cattle, those big cattle that the state of Texas is famous for and the great ranch land there. And he said, you see, pastor, over there to the east, that's all mine. And then he looked to the west, and behind him there was a beautiful forest. And he said, you see all those trees, all that timber, all of that is mine. And he expected the pastor to be impressed. He expected the pastor to compliment him on his entrepreneurship. And how wisely he had invested and how hard he had worked. And the pastor looked around and saw all of these things, this great expanse of land with the wealth that it was producing. And he placed one hand on the man's shoulder. And he pointed heavenward and he said simply this, but how much do you have in that direction? You see he had it north, south, east, west but how much do you have in that direction? The man stared blankly for a moment. Then he hung his head in shame, and he said, Pastor, I never thought of that. I wonder how many men will topple into a Christless eternity because they never thought of that. I wonder, uh, could it not be that you yourself may lose your very soul, that your soul would drop into hell because you never thought of that possibility. You know, the man who wanted Jesus to judge over his father's legacy had never thought of eternity either. The fictional character, the farmer whose focus in that parable was upon his harvest, evidently had never thought that this would be his last day and that he would be plunged into eternity. You see, he reckoned without eternity. He never thought of that. Hey, where are you going to spend eternity? Will you take some time tonight to think of that? Because contrary to the philosophy of this world, it is not the man who dies with the most toys who wins. It's the man who dies with his sins forgiven and Christ as his Savior who wins. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.